we are back. Happy New Year, everybody. It's been uh, a little bit of a long layoff for us. Yeah. So we got a lot of great stuff to talk about this week. We're going to do a little postmortem on uh, LAFCA Awards, on the Oscar nominations, the Golden Globe Awards, where things stand going into the Oscars. Um, those who have, of course, followed uh, uh, our little odyssey, the uh, short that my wife produced, that I executive produced, uh, writer-director Brant Anderson's uh, live-action film Refugee was uh, shortlisted for the live-action category, and we were not one of the five so nominees. Close. To be shortlisted, I know I say this all the time, I'm not just being that, but I'm sorry. Yeah. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. Uh, and it was complicated, uh, this whole way that the Academy, with the voting and this and that, and we can poke around that as yeah, much as we want. I mean, but I got to say that it, it, issues that I didn't care for. Yeah. Well, we're we're happy to have been shortlisted. We're going to still get some mileage out of this film. People need to see it. And uh, uh, as soon as there is a uh, a way for our listeners to see it, I, we will make it known. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you can uh, you can actually go to the uh, the refugee short film uh, page on Facebook. And I think I, I think there is a link uh, uh, in the Synagogues and Digigods Facebook uh, groups where. I had posted that. So, in any case, we were we were happy to be in the mix, and it was uh, it was a thrilling moment. I have to say, it was the first time that I've ever watched the uh, Oscar nomination announcement and and <laughs> felt invested in the moment as they're reading them off. And you know, they go through them alphabetically, and it gets down to uh, Nefta Football Club, and yeah. alphabetically, we would have been the next one. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. And then they said Saria, and I was like, oh, there uh, it is. Uh, uh, Whatever. I don't want to disparage any of the little movies. All the little movies. Were. Yeah, um, it was a, it was a tough group. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, ten, ten. But there ten are very things going films. on there that like I feel like I can say anyway. I can say it. You know why I can say it? I, I, I can. You know why I can say it? Because huh. I'm black. <laughs> uh, because I'm black, I can say this. Uh, and uh, if I were white, I couldn't say it. Brand Anderson, white dude. Yeah. Brand Anderson, a white dude making a movie about the Syrian refugee, this sort of Arab issue. There are yeah. these other films. Uh, floating around the same sort of territory, made yeah. by there are uh, two there are two Tunisian Arabic two, language yeah, films that are yeah. nominated, yeah, 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 which is unprecedented. Directed by you know yes. people of native yes. this that or the other thing. native Arabic speakers. Um, um, and um, in this particular era that we're in, uh, lots of things get filtered through. True, I'll go through these filters. Yeah. Uh, of perception and ideas and who can do what and why and, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes it, it, it brings us to landing in some very odd places, yeah. places that I don't like personally. Uh, I'm not, so I'll, 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 I'll put it this way. Years and years and years ago, um, Spike Lee said that Norman Jewison couldn't direct Malcolm X because they, uh, you know, sure. he wanted to direct Malcolm X, yeah. but he, but specifically, he said it ought to be had to be directed by, yeah, uh, you know, an African American person, black person. Um, uh, Norman Jewison said, well, that's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm Norman Jewison. I can direct uh, Malcolm X. It'll be a wonderful film. Uh, it wouldn't be the same wouldn't film. wouldn't be the same film. But it, 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 now, he, he, he deferred to Spike. He said, well, I want to see the film that that young black man would make. I want to see that film. Yeah. But make no mistake, I can direct that movie. Um, and and I agreed with Norman, and I you know and I and I disagreed with Spike. Love me some Spike Lee, but Spike was wrong. Yeah, uh, he was dead bang wrong. Glad he made that film, but I'd still love to see what Norman Jewison would do with the story of Malcolm uh, X. Let me, another one of our favorite films, yours and mine of last year, was uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah, 
which is written, directed, or co-written and directed by a white guy. Yeah, Joe. Who basically, in the movie, has a black actor play himself. Yeah. Okay. Jimmy. Jimmy Fails. Yeah. Jimmy Fails. Yeah. So, so th- there are a lot of really uh, interesting dynamics that are at play, but that, that takes us into another conversation with the Oscars. So first off, Golden Globes, I think uh, Irishman shut out, hurts it really badly. Yeah. Uh, and 1917's two surprise wins are, are uh, you know, not surprising now. It got, it's one of the uh, top four. I mean, Joker got 11, and then you got three films that got 10. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 1917. And uh, uh, Mayor's Story? No, not Mayor's Story. No, I haven't not Mayor's Story. Uh, hold on, gosh, why am I drawing a blank here? Joker, nineteen seventeen, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, and The Irishman. And The Irishman. The, Irishman. Got 10. Yeah, net, the Netflix. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, you know, basically four films that got the same number of nominations, except for that yeah, one for for Joker, Joker which 11. is really interesting. And um, so 1917 is clearly the dark horse that has kind of made its presence known late in the season. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. So I'm reading after the Oscars came out. Everybody's getting off all into their, you know, Oscar so white thing again. Like we had a few good years where it just felt like, oh, so much diversity. And now they're like, oh, they're doing it again. No. Let me, let me point something out. Yes, true. Jennifer Lopez and Lupita Nyong'o and a lot of other people, you know, a lot of a lot of black and Hispanic and Asian colors, Aquafina uh, actors did not get nominated. True. The fair a lot of women got shafted. Yes, true. I really uh, expected something for the farewell, but you know. Yeah, farewell. But here's what's interesting. Uh, I don't think that's the takeaway. I sure I'd have loved Freddie Murphy to get nominated. But you know what? Um, uh, Adam Sandler also didn't get nominated. Uncut Gems got totally shut out. Yeah, yeah, the and Safety that, Brothers film. And here's the takeaway. This is what's interesting about those four films that I just talked about. The four most nominated movies, all of them 10 or more nominations. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Columbia Pictures. 1917, Universal Pictures. Joker, Warner Brothers. Uh, the Irishman, Netflix. Now, What's not there? An indie. Mm. There are no independent distributors or financiers anywhere in those four. I have to go back and actually do the research, but I believe that may be the first time that that has happened in maybe 30 years. Mm. And it's certainly the first time in like 20 years. Since 2001, the only major studio to have won Best Picture is Warner Brothers. They've done it three times. Million Dollar Baby... Uh, the Ben Affleck thing and um, uh, The Departed. Yeah, right. Those are the those are the only three studio released films. And Ben Affleck's thing you could almost call an indie because it yeah. kind of came through them that way. Argo. Universal has not won since two thousand and one. Sony has never won a Best Picture in the years that they have owned Columbia mm. ever. Nineteen eighty eight. It's been over thirty years. Mm. Columbia is the second is, is is tied with UA at twelve for the most Best Picture wins in history, and it won them all from the thirties, yeah, through the eighties. Mm. Nineteen eighty seven, when Sony took over the next year after they bought it from Coca Cola, went dry. Once upon a time in Hollywood could be a, could change that. It feels like the rise of the studios again. Mm. It could be a blip. It could be a one off year. But maybe Netflix has had has lit a fire under the studios and made them think maybe we need to be making grown up movies with real filmmakers again. Well, it's an interesting thing because uh, both Netflix and Marriage Story, uh, yeah. both uh, Irishman, Irishman and Marriage Story, Netflix, Netflix and Marriage films, Story. 
that conversation uh, that we were having about a year ago that uh, Steven Spielberg started, yeah, uh, co- the conversation seems to have gone away. Uh, yeah. It's not a thing that we're talking about this year. Yeah. Um, um, so I think that Netflix won that battle. Uh, and uh, except they're not going to win. Uh, Irishman's not going to win. Going to win the award. So the question is, will the they win the award? Yeah. But, you know. You know, look in our organization, the Irishman didn't really get all that much love. No. It's, it's not a film that I'm particularly big on uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But yeah. whatever with all of that, um, uh, the Academy though is still kind of old school. Yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, now as, as soon as I say that, I, I, I take a look, and uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, Richard Jewell. Yeah. Uh, that film got nothing either. Nowhere, nowhere to be found uh, yeah. at all. You know, well received critically, didn't do so well at the box office though. No. Uh, although we don't know how well The Irishman has actually done because, you know. They won't tell us. No. So we, for all we know, those movies made the exact same amount of money. I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we may be seeing a little turn back towards studios deciding they want to be competitive in the Oscar race again. That they're not going to. Because it was around about the mid-90s, you know, when Disney said, okay, Miramax will handle our award stuff. And Fox said, we'll let Fox Searchlight handle our award stuff. And... Uh, Sony said we're going to let Sony Classics handle our award stuff, and everybody mm. had their little their little indie divisions. And then in two thousand five and six, a little more than ten years later, they, they were like, "Yeah, this isn't worth it. Yeah. It's not moving the needle on stock price." And they cut them all loose. Yeah, Paramount Classics turned into Paramount Vantage, and you know, it just it all went it all went south. And I think now there's maybe a little bit of a turnaround. I think maybe they're saying they're looking at Netflix and they're saying, you know what, we can make these movies again and 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 uh, get a little bit of our reputation back. Because if it can't all be comics. Look, the studios committed themselves to big uh, tentpole summer movies yeah. uh, for a, a good little while now. Yeah. And for a while, the, the attention was torn to turned to making those movies, yeah. Oscar-nominatable movies. They did. Yeah. Uh, Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, you know, got it, got in there. I'm a little surprised. Uh, uh, what uh, ten slots this year? Endgame didn't. Endgame did not get in there. Yeah. Now I know it's complicated. You have to reach thresholds and whatever to even get that empty slot. Yeah. But I can think of three or four movies, at least a couple of them big. Endgame um, that might have gotten into that slot. Uh, but I can think of a couple of small ones too. Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah. You know, again, thresholds. But it's an indie. It's but it's an, an indie. indie. Yeah. You know, and the indies didn't fare well this year. The fact that it's empty. Ford the, versus Ferrari is Ford, a Best Picture nominee. It, it, That's it a is. studio film That's too. That's a studio film too. Uh, but that that empty slot bugs me a little bit. Yeah. You know, because I'm you know uh, the, the machinations of the math not withstanding the farewell. Uh, and and if you do any of the if you put the farewell in that slot. Yeah, and to and to and if if the director of the farewell, Lulu, uh, last name I can't Lulu remember. Wang. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Uh. Now you have uh two films directed by uh, significant women, Greta Gerwig, yeah. Little Women, uh, and, they, yeah. and, and, you know, and now that whole conversation changes a little bit about both race and and, and the race conversation. Look, Bong Joon Ho. I sometimes it bugs me a little bit that we pretend like uh, that's not a man of color. <laughs> he's Korean. It's a person of color. Uh, he's doing well. Nominated twice. Best yeah. picture, best international film. Best director. Best, nominated for best director. That's a person of color yeah. showing up. Uh, the other thing that I will say about women. Look, I get it. Not Greta didn't get nominated as best director for Little yeah. Women. Yeah, but let's not make let's make no mistake. There are lots and lots of women who may take that Academy Award stage if any one of those best pictures win. The second producer, uh, you know, a, yeah. a stage-taking producer on every one of those big-ass films yep. is a woman. And that and that has been overlooked. Yeah. 
you know. It is, and I will say this too, the Oscars can only honor the films that get made. And when you, when in the director's category as well, I know they keep saying this, oh, not enough women. Well, look, directors nominate directors and the director's branch is historically male because men are the ones who have historically directed most of the movies. Mm. So they're the market from which the Academy has drawn that branch. If you want more women to get into the director's branch, more women need to be hired Mm. by studios to direct movies. And that's a change in mentality at the studio level. You need to convince them that, you know, I mean, and they're doing it now with the superhero movies, but they need to understand women don't just, you know, everybody gets pigeonholed. Oh, we women's films. (laughs) We have a woman's film. Let's get a woman to direct it. Wonder Woman needs to be. Wait a minute. Maybe when Iron Man is directed by a woman, now we're talking. Yeah, exactly. Great. Black Panther is directed by a black director. Young black man. But but when Superman is directed by a black director, now we've broken out of this mindset, this compartmentalization mindset. When when Superman is directed by a Somalian woman, uh, then we're going to be all right in this town. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, for whatever... Yeah, so that's the thing that we have to sort of start letting that go. By the way, if Quentin wins Best Director, as I think he will, uh, that will be the first time that an American, a native-born American, has won that award in over a decade. Really? Isn't that well, amazing? Yeah, yeah I, I would not have known that. Crazy, right? I would not have known that. I would. Yeah. So anyway, I think you know, these films, uh, a lot of interesting films, I think it's more diverse... Um, uh, you know, in all of these yeah. categories, then we're giving it credit for, and both in terms of gender and race. Yeah. Sometimes we we only look at those sort of marquee spots. Best yep. director. Let me tell you something. If I'm a woman and I'm a, a second producer uh, on The Irishman or A Marriage Story or uh, Parasite, yeah. And, I, and go look them up. Yeah. I, I, I promise you, if any one of those pictures, any one of the nine, win Best Picture. A woman is going to be taking that stage. That's it. As a producer, yep. and uh, and that's a hell of a thing. That's a hell of a thing. It is. So interesting year for the Academy Awards. Even if uh, the film I worked on did not uh, get nominated, but let's get into now. Let's get into the uh, the new releases. And as it happens, Joker is out. This is recently out on 4K Ultra HD. Um, and I've gone on about this uh, multiple times. The Joker and uh, Dolomite is my name are basically the same movie, flip sides. Yes, one of them is based on a true story. The other one's a comic character. But uh, they're both period. Joker in the 1980s, Dolomite in the 1970s, pre-social media about uh, failed stand-up comics who are trying to find their place in the world. Both are protective of, of women. Both have mother figures. Both have problematic histories with their fathers. On and on and on and on. And there are all kinds of parallels between the two, the difference being that Joker loses faith in society and becomes a villain, and Rudy Ray Moore will not lose faith in himself, and he becomes a star. And uh, I just think the two films are such a fascinating socio- sociological study in contrast, I, I, and I love them both. I think I love Dolomite more, but nonetheless, Joker, very interesting, 11 Academy Award nominations. Yeah. It's quite a thing, uh, you know. Uh, I, I have this. Odd, I have a very odd sort of relationship with Joker. Look at that film. I can see. You know, this is good filmmaking. I'm surprised. Todd Phillips. Yeah. You know, the, the uh, you know, yeah. Hangover guy. I know. Not a particular big fan of any of that stuff. Uh, but he's bringing to bear some sort of interesting. Stuff. Here's here's the problem with that movie for me. Um, the filmmakers 
and, and, I, and, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't ascribe this to Joaquin Phoenix because it's not a thing that he can do. Yeah. But the rest of the filmmakers, the writers, uh, the directors, they don't seem to know that that character is a bad guy. <laughs> and to me, that's a you know, it's it's, a, it's yeah. an odd sort of thing. The way that they construct and dynamic, and you know, all of this, they don't seem to get that. No, he's the bad guy. And and uh, and I know that that's a just sort of a, a point of what they do. But I'm like, but no, but you're supposed to know he's a bad guy. <laughs> he doesn't know he's a bad guy. Yeah. But the yeah, so anyway, interesting thing uh, about that about that movie. Uh, that, you well, know, he's the bad guy, folks. Here's also what's interesting is that both the Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood borrow a great deal of inspiration from Scorsese and uh, are nominated with him. Yeah. I mean, this is straight up Taxi, oh, taxi Driver, driver. Yeah. meets, meets yeah. the King of Comedy. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. this is. Yeah. So I wonder how Marty feels about that. Uh, it's like Martin Scorsese movies got 31 <laughs> nominations this year. <laughs> one but only one of them was directed by Marty. Uh, uh, so and, and oddly, the least interesting of them. Yeah, it's uh, true. Which, the least know, Scorsese-like of them. Of them, yeah, you know. Uh, anyway, I am a fan of Joker. I, I do think it has... It's a, it is problematic in a lot of ways, maybe intentionally so, but I, uh, I was certainly engaged by it, and I think it is, uh, it is subversive on a, on a very compelling level. Yeah. Uh, lots of, uh, lots of uh, interesting stuff on here, the making of and uh, you know, alternate takes and costume tests and stuff like that. The 4K is very sharp, but it is a, it's a roughly photographed film. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't sort of glow in 4K the way that other films do. Well, it's, it's supposed to look like, uh, it's supposed to look like, like, like uh, a film would have looked in yeah. 1973. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know uh, that's the way it's supposed to look. It's supposed to be gritty and grainy. Uh, it's, it's supposed to look like five easy pieces or uh, now, something like that. Uh, on another level, the Jerry Bruckheimer produced, uh, Ang Lee directed, Will Smith starring. That used to be a trio that would have been a big hit. My goodness, what went wrong with Gemini Man, Mark? Mm. Uh, what, what, what? Seriously, Tim, what, what went wrong here? Well, the, 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 how the, did it miss the mark? The, 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 the sort of visual dynamic that they're going for, uh, number one. So. We have that frame yeah. rate as as well as this technology, this younging down technology. The, the film is more invested in both of those things, the technology in general, than it yeah. is in narrative. The narrative of that film is, is you've seen that movie a thousand times. Yeah, I think that was an episode of a uh, uh, you know the, the younger guy going after yeah. yeah. four or five different television shows from the seventies yeah. and eighties uh, had that as an episode. So there's nothing about the narrative that's all that. So now we're we're here to watch the movie. To literally watch the movie, yeah. and I found myself watching this movie mostly concerned with how much that young Will Smith looked like young Will Smith. Yeah. And five minutes go by, and I'm like, "Oh wait, <laughs> what what happened?" Uh, but because I haven't been paying any attention because I didn't care. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, I, that, when it when it comes down to the technology, folks, same thing with that one of those Hobbit movies. Uh, yeah. That thing yeah, they the shot. First at, Hobbit, they, the yeah, first Hobbit. The first Hobbit. I'm like. Come on, man. It, yeah. Cut it out with the technology. So for me, the issue was this movie is way more concerned with that than it is with telling some sort of story That's that I the care thing. about. Yeah, the, the 60 frames per second is just not, it's not enjoyable. Or, yeah, I don't want these people in the room with me. I it's want them I, on this. I want them on the screen. It's what I said on Film Week. I said, "Here's the problem I have with 60 frames per second. I can do that with my iPhone yeah. when I do video of my daughter." But I don't even want to see her in 60 no. frames per second. <laughs> it's just, it hurts my eyes. You know, yeah, there yeah. is a poetry to a lower frame rate. Yeah. And uh, it's not arbitrary that they settled on 24 originally. It yeah. really isn't. 
Mm-hmm. It's where audiences responded, and uh, there's there's something to that. Anyway, um, they've got a a 4K special feature on here all about the special effects, which is interesting. But the movie isn't really. There also uh, there's an alternate opening and deleted scenes and a lot of other featurette stuff. None of which is is terribly interesting unless you love the movie. Um, you know, deleted scenes are kind of interesting, but uh, it other otherwise it looks great. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. I, it's it's it, it really does have a you know a, a, a spectacular vibe to 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 it from a purely technical standpoint. But boy. Not not that pleasant. pleasant. Look, I've never been a big fan of uh, what I call uh, movies uh, that are incredibly present. Yeah. Uh, in, in in the way that daytime television used to be years ago before everything yep. sort of changed. Um, that incredibly present sort of feel doesn't feel like film. No. Doesn't look like film. Doesn't feel like film. Nope. Doesn't evoke the same emotional response. Uh, 24 frames per second. That's the way your human eye works. Uh, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, the totally unnecessary sequel to the almost unnecessary original Maleficent retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story, one of the first live-action adaptations of the animated stuff that Disney started doing. Uh, Boy, I gotta tell you, Angelina Jolie looks like she doesn't really want to be in this movie. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer looks like she's glad for the paycheck. It is a beautiful 4K rendering, but you see all the effects and all the flaws in them, and they really rushed a lot of it. And I gotta say, by and large, the story here, pretty much the same story as in Frozen 2. I'm just gonna say, whatever's going on at Disney, Mm. there's a lot of cross-pollination on the storytelling, and I think that was a mistake. Mm. If you've seen this and you've seen Frozen 2, you go... Mm. You people yeah. need to change your offices. You need, yeah, you need to, you need to mix it up a little bit. Uh, so anyway, I it, it also I don't like how it sort of reinvents the characters in a it tries to redeem Maleficent in a way that I don't think uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, my daughter hasn't seen this yet. She saw the original Maleficent, didn't care for it a whole lot, yeah. and she loves Sleeping Beauty, which she just watched again for about the eighteenth time last night. So uh, yeah, I I don't know. Um, there's not going to be another Maleficent, I'll tell you that right now. They they just they squeeze every last bit of uh, joy out of that one. That's enough of that. Sir. Tim, The Lighthouse, also another indie that didn't get uh, any Oscar love. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people like that movie. Uh, Robert Pattinson, uh, Will Nafoe, sort of two-man show. Yeah. Uh, it's not a movie that I cared for. No, I didn't either. So, but a lot of people, you know, among Black the indies were, were, were engaged in it. And, and I was corrected, too, by Christy Lemire when we were on the radio together, because uh, I, I said, yeah, it's Academy Ratio, you know, 133. She says, oh, no, no, it isn't. It's like 118, mm. like one eighteen, one 1.18 ratio. I said, really? She said, yeah. They went back to a ratio that is like a silent, silent era, yeah. a silent era uh, aspect ratio just to, to be yeah. whatever. It's what Robert Eggers does. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a bit of the same thing that he did with The Witch. He and his brother, they go back, they get all this archival material, all this archival writing. They... They base their dialogue on the the on on what had been written at the time, so it really has a very authentic feel. And yeah, look, it's an old guy and a young guy who are stuck in a lighthouse in the in the in the like the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, and um, they progressively lose their minds and go crazy, which is you know repulsion. It's mm. uh, Catherine Deneuve in Polanski's Repulsion, yeah. except two guys in a lighthouse. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I get it, um, but make a bigger movie next time. Robert yeah. Eggers is a talented guy. 
he can do bigger movies. So you've made two lengthy student films now with yeah. just a handful of people and some really great sound design, amazing sound design. But take it up a notch, dude. You know, stop making it in little tiny. Let let's go now. Somebody is certainly going to write you a check for a twenty five million dollar movie. Make one. Got to have a narrative. You know, got to have, 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 have a story. You know. That's not that movie's not really about anything. It's not. Yeah. It's just two guys going nuts, and yeah. he gets to kind of do some cool visuals. And as long as we're on the subject of Joker, I thought it was really interesting that um, that uh, a couple of people decided, hey, let's take advantage of the fact that Joker's coming out this week with that clowny face on the cover of Joker. Yeah, maybe we can piggyback on that with <laughs> our clown movies. Uh, I am showing you Tim. You gotta love you gotta love film marketing. People. You do. So I'm showing Tim uh the first one, which is from Doppelganger releasing. It basically does cult movies. It is Gags the Clown. The joke is on us. This is from Doppelganger and Bloody Disgusting. And uh, you know, it's uh th- these are these are movies about clowns that are not nice clowns. This is just a low budget uh, thing about a clown terrorist, and uh, you know it, it. It's it's riding a little bit on it uh, as yeah. much, yeah, uh, a tiny bit. Which did, oddly enough, it chapter two didn't get any Oscar love either. Um, but uh, yeah, it it's just uh, you know uh, it, it's not. There's not much going on here. It, it's it's just trying to exploit something that's very easily exploitable. Has some uh, commentaries with the filmmakers and behind-the-scenes stuff, storyboards and visual effects. And, you know, I mean, if, if you're into low-budget kind of uh, the stuff that Doppelganger and Bloody Disgusting do, Gags the Clown on Blu-ray might be your, your cup of tea. On the other hand, this DVD from Magnet about called Wrinkles the Clown <laughs> is terrific. Yeah, yeah. So... If you don't know about Wrinkles the Clown, and boy, that is one scary looking. That's a scary clown face. Way scarier than Way Joker. Sc- oh, so much scarier. So here's the deal. This is Michael Beach Nichols is the documentarian who made this. This is a documentary uh, about a very particular phenomenon that, and this is a real thing, and it still goes on. Wrinkles the Clown is a for hire clown, a terrifying for hire clown, terrifying, who. Um, people basically parents hire him to scare the living daylights out of their children as punishment. This is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a real thing. Yeah. They will call him up and he will like hide in a toy chest or he'll hide in the closet. Like it's a whole setup, right? Mm-hmm. They, 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 they set this whole thing up so that whenever and wherever he appears, it, it makes their children pee themselves. <laughs> they are, they are just Absolutely horrified, and this is vicious. It is vicious. It's sadistic. It's child abuse. Um, It it should be illegal, but (gasps) it isn't. So Uh. this is what a lot of these parents do. They're like, you know, Billy doesn't make his bed, so I'm gonna punish him and nick. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna hire wrinkles for five hundred dollars a pop to come out of the closet at three in the morning and go boo. Yeah. And then Billy will wet himself uh, for the very last time, and he'll never forget to make his bed again. Yeah. Twenty years from now, when Billy's eating people in Detroit. (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this yeah. theory. But here's the thing. What's interesting about this doc is you think, oh, and then they, they get to who the guy is. The guy, the guy who plays the guy. The guy who plays the guy, but who insists on not being photographed. And thereafter, you're like, well, that's an interesting twist. You know, he's being really anonymous. 
And then there's another twist mm. at the end. It is a documentary with two really insane twists about an unbelievably bizarre guy and subject. Wow. Anyway, it is it is really compelling. It is a really good documentary and and uh, maybe one of the best docs I saw last year, but it was never going to be in any of no. the fix. It just it's too far out there, but it's really worth checking out. And kudos to Michael Beach Nichols for uh, going down the rabbit hole of this totally bizarre subject. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, it is a worthwhile thing to watch. Man, you know, no one's gonna be able to do regular clown again after <laughs> after this and it and Joker. It's over. The the whole clown thing oh, is it's finished. Yeah. It's finished. All right, shall we uh, do do the LGBT stuff? Got some LGBT. Yeah. Very good. Very very good. Copa nineteen eighty one is a lovely uh, film. Um, that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, Danan uh, Cerda uh, is the Brazilian uh, director who directed this por- Portuguese language film. It's really, really sweet. Um, uh, it's about these uh, folks who go to this uh, sort of club, sort of gay sauna, uh, and, and, and they get involved. And, 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 and not just sex, but these relationships that are just absolutely fascinating, very, very funny, um, uh, include, including this one guy who has his girlfriend uh, that he's very, very happy with, but he sort of confides... Uh, in some of the gay guys, uh, yeah, about some of the ideas and thoughts. It's a very funny, very funny film. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Papa Chulo. Papa Chulo was a film that I reviewed actually on the show, um, I guess several few months ago now. Uh, really enjoyed this film, Matt Balmer film. Matt, who happens to be from St. Louis too, I, it, it's interesting. Alejandro Patino is a wonderful character actor in this film. Matt is this gay weatherman here in Los Angeles. Uh, who, who goes through this breakup. He hires uh, a, a handyman, this Mexican handyman who does not speak English to come and do some work on his house after his boyfriend moves out. And he, and he falls into this sort of uh, funny, funny relationship with this Mexican handyman who doesn't speak English. It was irritating at the time because they suggested that there were some things that were sort of insensitive about this film, this sort of you know, well-to-do uh, gay man, uh, 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 hanging around with this sort of a Mexican handyman, and they said it was insensitive. I disagree completely. In order for a movie to be insensitive, it has to be ignorant of the things that it's doing. This is a film that's very aware, very conscious conscious of the content of the film, and it put it in there on purpose so that commentary could be made about it. And what I like about the commentary is it's done very subtly. Every now and again, uh, Papa Chulo, Alejandro's character, will simply hear or see something that Matt Balmer's character does, and he'll just roll his eyes in this particular way. And you know what? That's all the commentary you need about the dumbass thing uh, that the gay guy just did. And it's just absolutely extraordinary funny and and poignant, and I like it a lot. Papa Chulo loved it a lot. Cousins. I love this film from uh, TLA release, and this is a really neat film. You have this young man uh, who's living with his auntie, uh, in the countryside, and uh, just having a you know a, a perfectly lovely time in his life, and his auntie invites uh, a distant cousin, another young man, to come and live with him. This kid is just getting out of prison, and there's all kinds of. But you know what I like about this movie? There are no twists, no terms. Uh, no, no. It's not about uh, one kid getting the other kid into trouble or anything right. like that. They simply drift into this lovely relationship. Surrounded by this loving auntie uh, who helps them both sort of get them, their lives on track and pointed in the right direction. And not a, not a mean or evil or scary thing happens in the whole damn movie. Yeah. It's just funny and romantic and sweet, and I like it a whole, whole lot. 
Uh, you want to knock off a couple of those before uh, we come no, back? No, finish, finish it off. Finish uh, it off. Uh, okay, okay. Bunch. Uh, uh, the, uh, these uh, these peculiar days. This is about um, uh, eight friends who travel out to a, a cabin in the woods uh, to, to just sort of um, talk and explore themselves and see what the hell is going on. It's an adolescent coming of age story. Uh, and it's really, really sweet as they're graduating from high school and they, they stay in the woods and, uh, and, and get involved and do some wacky things. And it gives us a little bit erotic, but again, that's not what it's about. It's really just a sort of sweet and lovely coming-of-age story uh, that, I, that I actually rather liked quite a lot. Testosterone. I remember this film from uh, 2004. Uh, now, this is a gay film. Uh, <laughs> it, these, kids are, these, these, these kids aren't kidding around. It's a whole series of these films. This is volume four. It's from Daku. It's in the same vein as all the rest of the volumes of the films. Uh, uh, just a sexy collection of uh, hot gay short films, a collection of uh, short films around several characters uh, as they figure out what's going on in their relationships. Fish Tank uh, is one that's particularly good. I rather enjoyed that a lot. And The Handyman. Uh, another very, very good film. All with different directors. Uh, Testosterone, a lot of fun there. Adam um, uh, is another very good little film. It's about uh, this, uh, this teenage kid. It's kind of weird, kind of awkward. It's this uh, last uh, summer before uh, uh, high school starts. Uh, and his big sister, uh, who's like this New York lesbian, and he goes to live with her for a while, and she teaches him, him the whole gay scene. And it's just a really, really sweet movie. Uh, about a young man and his big sister sort of hanging around. Uh, you know, uh, again, love and friendships and goofiness. I, I, I like this film again because nothing really happens in it. It's just about this young man coming of age. He goes and hangs out with his big sister uh, and, uh, and, and meets all of her films and sort of learns what it's like to be a young man coming of age gay in New York City. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable little film. Uh, Chloe Levine in this film, too. Thoroughly enjoyed her. Very good. All it right. Takes care of that business. Let's get into. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna bounce back and forth between we got TV and we got classic movies to round out everything else. And I'm gonna start with some Arrow releasing stuff. Um, boy, this is uh, this is a real blast from the past. Jake Speed. Oh Tim, man. Do you remember Jake Speed? Oh hell yeah. Okay, Jake Speed was one of a whole litany of films that came <laughs> came around in the in the wake of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Romancing yeah. the Stone. Oh my God, the Alan the Alan Quartermain film. Alan Quartermain films. There's a whole ton. There, there's just a whole litany of them, and um, and this is one of them. And this is one of the funniest and cheesiest of them. Um, this is such an insanely stupid movie, and yet it's somehow oddly compelling. Um, this basically is the story of a woman who is kidnapped in Paris, and her family then uh, hires a guy named Jake Speed, who's also the subject of a lot of these novels. And he and his, his sidekick uh, find out that she has been kidnapped by white slavers and yeah. taken to a war-torn country in Africa where she is at the mercy of this lunatic played by John Hurt. That's pretty much all you need to know. Other than that, this thing is just completely unhinged and totally bananas. Uh, Jake is played by Wayne Crawford. It's like the only decent thing he ever did. I don't think he shows up in anything else at all. Um, those were all in the 80s, right? All those movies. They're all in the 80s. They're all late. They all came out. There was a whole series of them sort of biting on the Star Wars films as yeah. well. Ice Pirates and, and on And on, uh, on, on Road Warrior. On the Essen. On the There's Road Warrior. a lot Warrior. of those yeah. knockoffs, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, this thing is just totally bananas. It's, it's, it's a real hoot. It's full-blown exploitation film stuff. It's totally unapologetic. Um, it doesn't even try to convince you that it's, 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 it's just, it just goes. It just says, just throw caution to the wind. will be completely bananas. 
and uh, it's got a uh, new interview in it with the, the producer William Fay. It's got um, the. Uh, it's a really good transfer, by the way. They did a two K uh, restoration of the original elements, which are you know from the original thirty five millimeter thirty five millimeter interpositive. That's really really good looking. So they give it a real a real nice cleanup. Still looks like an eighties film, but it's really nicely cleaned up. And uh, it's it's worth uh, it's worth a look from a nostalgia standpoint alone. I think also from a nostalgia standpoint, uh, it's worth giving a glance at the ten year old. I can't believe it's been that long now. Jim Jarmusch film Limits of Control, which is such a weirdly compelling uh, kind of quasi noir. You know, when Jim Jarmusch gets a bee in his bonnet to do something stylistic, he, he especially these movies about mysterious journeys, like Broken Flowers is another one of those with Bill Murray. This one's even more mysterious. This is uh, Isaac de Bancole from uh, Ghost Dog. Um, um, shows up in Spain, and he's looking for something, and he's, you know, kind of on this, this weirdly third man-like journey around to talk to strange people and figure something out. And it's very noiry, very third man, uh, very Jarmish, uh, obviously, in its tone, beautifully shot by Christopher Doyle, who, of course, you know, was most famous for all of his uh, Wong Kar Wai collaborations. And um, it's got some really fascinating, funny, unexpected cameos that I won't name here. Um, and it's, it, I don't know that it goes anywhere necessarily satisfying, but the journey is so interesting and it's so uniquely, uh, and weirdly Jim Jarmish and Isaac de Bancole is such a wonderful actor. He's just so subdued and has such a, has such a cool vibe to him. So it's, uh, it's worth checking out. Um, there's an archival documentary here called Behind Jim Jarmish, which I think is almost as, as important as the film itself a featurette on the locations and uh, a lot of other really, really fun stuff, including um, a video interview with the guy who wrote Stranger Than Paradise, Maverick filmmakers in recent American cinema, uh, Jeff Andrew. And uh, it's, uh, this is a good, uh, it's a good little, uh, good little indie to revisit from 2009. The real gem from Arrow this week, though, I got to say is 1972's Slaughterhouse Five, made just three years after the publication of Kurt Vonnegut's book, and uh, I think that matters. You know, Slaughterhouse-Five is a really difficult story. A lot of people said it's an unadaptable story. And George Roy Hill, who was really in his element in 1972, he had, he had done The Sting. Uh, he had done uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a lot of other great stuff. George Roy Hill was one of the hot directors in the early 70s. And um, uh, this is literally the year before The Sting. But he, you know, he's, he's still, he's a hot guy. So uh, George Roy Hill uh, found a way to take this, this story that flips around in the universe and back and forth in time because the character is, as he says, quote-unquote, unstuck in time. And he found a way to tell this story in a, in a narratively compelling way that was true to the book. And it's amazing, and it feels very much of its time and its era. I don't think you could do this film today. I don't think you could do right by the novel today if you were to try to redo it. Um, it's really, really fascinating. It's got some wonderful performances in it. Michael Sachs, Ron Liebman, Valerie Perrine. Um, it's just a superb movie. Stephen Geller gets a lot of credit for the screenplay as well. And tons of superb extras on this. They did a 4K restoration from the original camera negative that is simply to die for. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, playing Slaughterhouse-Five, is a video interview with Perry King that is really, really worth checking out. They also have an interview with Rocky Lang, only on Earth, presenting Slaughterhouse-Five, who, uh, whose dad, Jennings Lang, was the uh, executive producer of the film. 
Uh, Unstuck in Time, documenting, documenting Slaughterhouse-Five is a video interview with uh, uh, Robert Crawford Jr., um, who did all of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, it's just really, it's, it's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. And I especially in, uh, enjoyed um, essentially uh, Eternally Connected, Composing Slaughterhouse-Five, which is an interview with uh, Daniel Schweiger, uh, who is a, a film music historian that I, Tim and I actually kind of know from 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when uh, we all wrote for uh, the same publication. So uh, kind of an amazing thing. And a reversible um, sleeve if, you want, if you're into that kind of stuff and you want to switch up the artwork. So all of that from Arrow. Really, really interesting. Great month getting very competitive with Criterion, which brings us to Criterion. Got four sensational Criterion releases this week. Uh, two of them foreign language and uh, two of them not. The two foreign language ones, we're going to talk about Pedro Almodovar because he's in the mix again this year with the Academy Awards. Um, All About My Mother. I still think this might be his best film from 1999. Absolutely a beautiful film. Gets the wonderful, wonderful uh, Criterion treatment here. Director approved. Tons of extras. Interviews with everybody. Penelope Cruz and Almodovar and Almodovar's brother. Television programs uh, with Almodovar and his mother from 1999. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, there's a 48-minute post-screening Q&A from Madrid just this last year. Really uh, sensational. It, you, you will develop a love for this movie like you cannot imagine. And it is maybe Penelope Cruz's best ever performance as the as the nun she is just absolutely wonderful uh cecilia roth uh it, it should have i mean could have easily been uh, a major oscar contender this year uh in 1999 it's a beautiful film uh cannot recommend it highly enough all about my mother pedro almodovar on blu-ray from criterion and then uh, I'm a little bit less enthused because I'm not such a uh, Godard fan, but uh, Le Petit Soldat, The Little Soldier by Jean-Luc Godard from 1963 when he was in his, very much his, his, his crucial early new wave element. Um, can't say it's as, it's as impressive as Breathless. This came right on the heels of Breathless. It was his second film. But he, he's definitely getting more political here. He wanted to get into uh, the Algerian War, which, of course, was a thing in 1963. He wanted to comment on current events. And I think the film is mildly... It's a little too didactic to be successful as a narrative film, but that's Godard. And uh, Anna Karina uh, is wonderful here. His then-wife, who, of course, would uh, star in several of his films, who only passed away this last year... Uh, she really makes the film. It, it's worth watching more for her than for Godard. Uh, also beautifully shot by Raoul Coutard, the, the legendary new wave cinematographer. And uh, doesn't have a ton of extras. It's got uh, an interview with Godard from 1965 and an interview with actor Michael Subor from 1963. And then a Godard audio interview from 61 that doesn't uh, that obviously predates this film. But I mean, you know, for for a Godard fan, uh, it's crucial to if you're if you want to see how he developed as a filmmaker, being his second film, doubly crucial. The other two Criterions, both English language, one is Failsafe by Sidney Lumet, made in 1964, totally overshadowed by Doctor Strangelove, made the same year, basically the same subject matter. One's funny, one isn't. Uh, and uh, I remember in my uh, comedy class at UCLA. The uh, there was a um, a double feature meant to show us how you take the same material and you can this is what makes something funny versus something making it serious, and uh, that was the lesson we saw: Failsafe and Doctor Strangelove back to back, and what an education it was. There are scenes in the two films that almost exactly mirror each other. 
It's really fascinating. And then nobody was copying anybody. There's no plagiarism going on. It's simply that this is what was in the air at the time. It's the, the, the Cold War, the height of the Cold War. Uh, fear of, uh, of, of communism is, is uh, unprecedented. And uh, Stanley Kubrick saw it as an absurdist moment, and he took his film into an absurdist direction. And Sidney Lumet, who, of course, came from the, the world of live television drama, wanted to read in, you know, in 12 Angry Men. He did the same thing with Failsafe. He took it into a really, really intense place. And, it, and both films are excellent. Failsafe gets unfairly overshadowed, and it shouldn't be. It is a really, really superb film. And this will hopefully restore its reputation since we now have Criterion releases of both Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove. So uh, the, uh, this comes with some extras, audio commentary from 2000 with Sidney Lumet, who is now, of course, sadly deceased, a new interview with Jay Hoberman, uh, one of the all-time great film critics who talks all about this genre and a short documentary called Failsafe Revisited, which has interviews with Lumet and screenwriter and... Uh, Dana Hurley, who's in it. There's also a very, very young uh, actor in this whom we would go on to mm. know as JR or as Tony <laughs> Nelson. Larry Hagman. Larry Hagman yeah. shows up in this, a very young Larry Hagman, and he's wonderful. Didn't Larry live more or less on your side of town for many, many years? Yes, he did. Yeah. You know what? He, he became famous in, in the vicinity because when he was retired, he was famous for his big anti-smoking crusade long before smoking was banned in bars and restaurants and yeah. everything else and planes. And Larry would carry around a little portable bat battery-powered battery fan. <laughs> and if anyone around him was smoking, he would do this. He'd pull it out and go, and blow their smoke back at them. It was hysterical. Uh, this is Larry Hagman. Yeah, Larry Hagman. Uh, and then the last criterion here from George Cooker. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody the other the day who said, you know, Hollywood doesn't make enough women's pictures. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what you're saying. Mm. You're saying Hollywood doesn't greenlight enough movies directed by women, mm. many of which we would call women's pictures. But pretty much George Cooker, George Cooker was, yeah. a, was a gay man, yeah. not out and out at the time. Everyone yeah. in Hollywood knew, nobody else did. But George Cooker was a gay man who made his entire career on women's pictures. Basically, yeah. Yeah. even including My Fair Lady, uh, for which he finally won his long overdue Oscar. But um, Holiday with Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant is a classic and one of his very best from 1938. An absolutely wonderful, legendary, timeless movie. Um, one of the all-time great romantic comedies. Really, it kind of it's just it's just superb. It's based on a play from uh, 1928. Um, but don't even worry, it doesn't feel like a play. It is, it's just, it, it's just two of the greatest stars in the history of Hollywood being directed by one of the all-time greatest directors and having a blast with it. Absolutely having a wonderful time. Screenplay was co-written by uh, Sidney Buckman and Donald Ogden Stewart, also two legendary screenwriters. And what a fun film it is. You don't even you forget some of the other great sporting performances there are in here. You got Gene Dixon and Edward Everett Horton and Lou Ayers. These are no slouches either, but everybody understands they're there so that Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant can just chew the scenery and do their thing. And what a fun movie this is. You can watch it over and over and over. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of a When Harry Met Sally thing yeah. a little bit. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it has that, that, it's sort of the template that all those kinds of films are based on. Meet cute, hate each other, learn to love each other, right? It's, yeah. we, 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 with it. But anyway, all the particulars are really fun. It's a great movie. Holiday from the Criterion Collection, 1938 on Blu-ray. Got to have it. Everyone has to own this. 
a little bit of TV. Do some TV. All right, Veep final season. Um, look, and the complete series too. And the and the, and the complete series yeah, too yeah. down here. I see the box. Yeah. Um, uh, for Veep, which I don't know. You, you tell me. What do you think? Um, uh, HBLC is the final season. Uh, the, I, I feel like I feel like this show started. Um, I mean, it won awards, and it's the thing. You know, it's it's awfully hard. She's the only one who came out of Seinfeld. Yeah. And was able to make a go of it again. Everybody yeah. else kind of just either retired. Jerry Seinfeld does his, you know, uh, uh, driving around in cars and coffee cars thing. And, yeah, yeah. Um, Michael Richards hasn't done much. Uh, Jason Alexander, you know, did the road tour for stepping yeah. in for Nathan Lane on the producers for a bit. But nobody reinvented themselves after Seinfeld in an award-winning, successful way. Other. Yeah, yeah. Then and she did. It's a very odd thing. You, you look, I watched the show. Uh, the, yeah. This uh, the the box seasons one through seven, with hours of sort of bonus yeah. features and all that kind of stuff um, uh, there. And then and then of course the final season um, uh, here. Um, this was a series that I more appreciated than liked. Yeah, this is where I come I down. I probably on agree with that. Um, um, you know, I got it. We were sort of making fun at all these sort of things. And if you're a political person like me, you can kind of see the folks that they're yeah. playing, that she's playing, and all yeah. this, all the stuff's going on there. And it's okay, but to, but I, I, you know, for me, it was not a thing that was sustainable. She had a series called the uh, the uh, the New Adventures of Old Christine. Yeah, right before this, yeah. didn't last very long. Maybe no. one season, a few episodes. Yeah, far and away funnier to me. But what See, are you I never really watched that. Yeah, that one cra- that that that, no, that no, just, I gotta go down, gotta go go dig down. Up, that yeah. just cracked me up completely and totally. Season three of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, Margaret uh, adaptation of the Margaret Atwood. Um, uh, look um, again um, uh, when when this uh, appeared on Hulu. Uh, you know, I, I think it was nineteen ninety that original film. Uh, Robert Duvall. Um, uh, Faye Dunaway, yep. uh, yeah, Volker, what's his name? Who directed uh, Sladen, Volker, something or other. Yeah, Volker uh, Schlondorf. Thank you. D- yeah. Directed that film. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Not not this completely reconceived um, uh, that, and I I was deeply engaged in it. Certainly for the first season. Um, uh, the second. By the time we get to the third season, which this is, I, I'm sorry, I'm I, I'm out. Yeah. Uh, this is a relentlessly brutal show. Yeah, that does not. It just simply will not take its foot uh, off, off the off the off the pedal of of making me feel uh, miserable. The whole Gilead thing. And anyway, um, uh, you, 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 Golden Globe winning, uh, Emmy Award winning uh, special features um, include a featurette called "Power Play: The Gilead's Gilead's Women Fight Back." Yeah. Um, so again, appreciate it, but. I had to give up on the handmade fell. It made me too depressed, man. The returned, the second complete season uh, of this interesting French series about a small town where people who had passed away years before uh, start coming back. Yep. And, and what does it mean? Uh, and what is going on? It's actually, it's actually sort of an, uh, an interesting series. It was adapted uh, for American television a couple of seasons ago. Didn't do quite as well. Uh, in the adaptation. Uh, nevertheless, this is interesting. Um, uh, English subtitles for the return. Game of Thrones to complete eighth season. Um, you know, I, I wonder if people who uh, were not happy with the, the way Game of Thrones uh, worked itself out, because, you know, a number of people are not happy with the way Game of Thrones mm-hmm. worked itself out. I was not a big Game of Thrones fan, by the way. So, therefore, I didn't have nearly as much vested in the finale, so when I watched the finale, I just sort of you know appreciated it in a broad and general sort of way. Watched Game of Thrones sporadically over the course of its uh, multi-year run, but just wasn't invested in it, so it didn't really bug me 
uh, the way it ended. But people who seem to be deeply vested in this series hate it. A lot of them. Yeah. Uh, the way it sort of wrapped I, itself up. I, I have to. I'm going to catch up with all of this at some point. My exposure to it has been intermittent as needed. But yeah. I'll, I'll I'll give it a go. Yeah. I'll give you it know. A go. Yeah, anyway, here we have the uh, the eighth, the complete eighth season. All kinds of bonus features. Uh, on on this stuff, I deleted seams, uh, behind the scenes featurette, featurettes. I suppose uh, that even if you didn't like the way it sort of worked itself out, it might be interesting yeah. uh, to pick that up just to be a sort of completionist and uh, be able to hang out. Big Little Lies, a complete second season, uh, I, I, which I thoroughly enjoyed, by the way. Meryl Streep came in and did some fa fantastic work on Big Little Lies in the second season. And I got to tell you, I was a little surprised. I didn't really think that there was anything else to do in this yeah. series after the first season. But they figured out a path for it, uh, which I appreciate uh, in the second season. Uh, bonus features uh, include a conversation with the cast uh, in a small featurette called The Lies Revealed. This is a really good show, and I'm really so glad that Reese and Nicole and mm. you know all of these ladies, yeah. you know, executive producers on the show, really doing something interesting. Yep. Same thing happening with that new show uh, over on I think it's Apple TV with Jennifer Aniston yep. and all this kind of stuff. You know, they're the they're, they're executive producers of these shows. They own these shows again, putting to the putting a lie to the notion uh, that there is nothing for women to do in this town. Yep, it's just not not true at all. Yep. Um, I, I got to tell you, I'm a fan of the Orville. Uh, it's one of it's, it's, it's one of the few things for which I'm really a fan that Seth does. Yeah. You know, Family Guy and all that. It's, yeah. it's all fine. But this sort of knockoff of uh, Star Trek, the sort of Star yeah. Trek series put through the filter of the, it cracks me up. Uh, I, I can't help and, it. It just cracks me up. Let me let me just say I give a lot of that wouldn't exist if not for Quark, which was a short lived series created by the late Buck Henry, who yes. just died last yes. week. Yes. And um and Quark, if the, for those who don't know, and Quark's out on DVD. It came out years and years ago. It's only like eight episodes. Quark is a, it was a Star Trek knockoff starring Richard Benjamin mm -hmm. as the captain of a an interstellar garbage scow. <laughs> had a Spock knockoff character on it. Had a couple of really hot twins who were clones. I mean, it was it was fantastic. No, he was making pointed fun, but having oh, a good time. Oh, so much fun. Uh, uh, special features include deleted scenes and uh, all kinds of gag reels and stuff like that, uh, and uh, some stuff from the uh, Orville. Oh, let me just let me just show my phone real quick. Uh, while they yeah. were down at Comic-Con this past season. So a lot of fun there. And uh, so appropriate then, Star Trek Discovery Season 2. Nice. Um, um, I watched Season 1. See, this is that CBS All Access series. Yeah. Uh, interesting because it's coming out, I think, in the next day or week or yeah. so. They're going to have that Picard series. I know. Uh, so sort of coming along. Uh, you, you, you know, mixed reviews of all of this kind of stuff. I watched that first season. Some of it was sort of interesting to me, the way they wrapped in the story of yeah. Pike. Yeah. Uh, and we meet young, uh, we meet young Spock, young man yeah. Spock. We meet child Spock and a young man Spock. She's supposed to be his sister, yeah, right in this series. Yeah, interesting that she's human, raised by by yeah. Sarek and Spock and his family. Yeah, um, um, but she's supposed to be his big sister in the series. Yeah, she's she's Spock's older sister. Uh huh. Yeah. I got a problem with that. Yeah. Because I've been watching this series for, you know, in the context of the series. Yeah. And Spock never mentioned a sister. No. Uh, and 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 I'm like, you know, that's we're a, retconning a lot of stuff. Don't don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. There, there there had to be a way to look back over the history of this series, figure out somebody for her to be yeah. that would make sense in the context of the history yeah. of the series. That's all you had to do. Other than that, I rather enjoy what goes on in the series. 
But that that notion bugs the hell out of me. Yeah. MacGyver season three. This is young MacGyver, of course. Yeah. You look at the man, I can't help it. I'm one of these guys who like all of the sort of remakes of all the crap that I liked when I was yeah. in the eighties, the MacGyvers, the uh the Magnum PIs, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I can't do it. I can't do it. I cannot yeah. watch some other guy who's not uh you know, Richard Dean, whatever his name is, Anderson, yeah. Yeah. running around pretending I to be MacGyver. It's I just like can't Magnum do it. PI. Like Mag- I'm sorry, you you're not Tom Selleck, you can't be Magnum uh, uh, PI. Yeah, I agree. But somehow they they made Hawaii Five O work with a different McGarrett. Yeah, and and, and, and you know they do Jack Lord. They do crossovers. You know that. Yeah, I Magnum PI. I, I know. That bugs the hell out of me. That Nevertheless, this is the third season of the MacGyver, uh, of MacGyver of the new yeah. MacGyver. I suppose it's all fine, but it's not something that I watch, so yeah. I'm not going to pretend like I do. Uh, uh, <laughs> Krypton. <laughs> the complete, the complete second and final season of Krypton. This was a lot of fun for me, actually. I rather enjoyed this uh, when it was on. I am man. I'm uh, I'm getting phone calls left and right over it's here. Okay. You're um, uh, I rather enjoyed this. Uh, I I like the reappearance of the the young General Zod uh, you know, on his ruthless mission to rebuild yeah. Krypton, all kind of stuff. This is uh, among the many Superman things that are sort of happening right now. This Krypton series was one that I thoroughly enjoyed. All right, I got three from the Warner Archive Collection, all new to Blu-ray. They're doing a lot more Blu-ray direct from uh, Warner Archive, and it's. Great, and I'm thrilled. Uh, two from the 50s, one from the 60s. I'm going to start with the one from the 60s because it's such a 60s movie. It's just so incredibly 60s. Um, this was made in 1965, directed by Michael Anderson, who uh, was famous basically for a minute because he directed the first uh, big widescreen Oscar winner around the world in 80 days. Not a good movie, but anyway, he he directed it, and that was uh, that sort of put him on the map coming out of the UK. Made a lot of other relevant movies, uh, The Queller Memorandum, Pope Joan in 1972, uh, Chase a Crooked Shadow in 1958. He, you know, he made he made a, a few of all the fine young cannibals in 1960. But um, Operation Crossbow was was one that really really kind of stuck for a lot of people. Produced by Carlo Ponti, the uh, then the husband of uh, Sophia Loren, who of course uh, the same year produced Doctor Zhivago. Yeah, and that's why this got a little overshadowed. But um, really, Operation Crossbow is a is a pretty terrific uh, World War II adventure action thing. It's somewhat based in fact. Uh, you can decide how much of it is. But George Papard and Sophia Loren, married to the producer, uh, are just a superstar couple. They're really, really fun. And uh, Trevor Howard and John Mills and Tom Courtney all show up in and Anthony Quayle in supporting parts. Who've all, of course, you know, shown up in a lot of David Lean movies and did this same year. Tom Courtney, of course, was in this and in uh, Doctor Zhivago, so I think he probably got a, a discounted rate from <laughs> Carlo Ponti, who was, you know, whatever. But anyway, this is um, it's a pretty fun film. It's a it's a pretty fun, uh, you know, action spy thing, and uh, you know, it's it's kind of in that same vein with uh, where Eagles Dare yeah. and the Dirty Dozen and all the guys on a mission stuff that was uh, that was really really big at the time, um, and it's a little shorter than most of those movies. It's uh, you know only 116 minutes it's worth. Uh, it's worth a blast. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, here's a really interesting one from uh, 1956, an RKO film called Great Day in the Morning, which kind of probably has fallen off a lot of people's radar. Well, what's interesting about this is it's directed by Jacques Tourneur, but it's a noir set in the West. Now, Jacques Tourneur, one of the all-time great noir directors, but yeah. what he does is he basically takes a scenario from the Old West right on the uh, – on in, set in Denver, Colorado, right before the Civil War is going to break out, 
and he turns it into a noir. Yeah. And it's great. You've got, you know, you have all of the tension, the pre-Civil War tension, abolitionists and, and, and Southerners who are in the town. They're in Denver. Denver was very much a divided town, a frontier town, kind of on the outskirts of the war. Yeah. But the war was being fought internally by the residents. Yeah. And Robert Stack. Oh, Virginia Mayo. Virginia Mayo is great. Yeah. She's terrific. But Robert Stack wants none of it. He wants gold. And that's yeah. the only reason he's there is yeah. for gold. And all these interesting tensions and all these interesting kind of Maltese Falcon type figures like Raymond Burr uh, show up. And Raymond Burr is fantastic. He's uh, he's he's just, you know, his name is Jumbo Means. Yeah. What a great name. <laughs> well, I tell people all the time, I have to remind people all the time, students anyway, yeah. that n noir is not a genre. Noir is a style that you can apply to any genre. That's it. Uh, there's noir horror films, noir westerns, noir yeah. all kinds of them, yeah. all gangster films. Yeah. It's it's terrific. It really really is terrific. It's a wonderful rediscovery. It should it and it's beautifully shot too. It should, it's worth finding just so that you can get your your Jacques Tourneur IQ up and running. It's really terrific. It has some good special features on it. Uh, some MGM shorts that are that are really really fun. Uh, the ship that died, Strange Glory, the Face Behind the Mask, and the Magic Alphabet. Great and day then, in the morning. Great title, by the great way. Great title. And then here's the real gem for the Warner Archive releases this week. Gosh, what an amazing movie! The Bad and the Beautiful, one of the all-time great great MGM non-musicals. MGM did not only make musicals, and in 1952, they made one hell of an amazing movie directed by a guy who is widely known for only musicals, yeah. Vincent Minnelli. Vincent, yeah. What a great thing this was, though. Let's take Vincent, give him a non-musical, and let's just let the world see the inner guts of Hollywood in their most horrendous, just bear it all. Yeah. And let's get this out of our system. Oh, and dude, Lama Turner. Oh my gosh! Me? It is just this really, really. I mean, it comes two years after uh, Sunset Boulevard kind of opened the doors to yeah. say, "We can let the world see how awful this business." It's is. It's a movie really about is. Hollywood. It's about it's a producer, about, yeah, and, and, and his manipulations of Kirk Douglas. Everybody, yeah, Kirk, Kirk Douglas, Douglas yeah. playing this just absolutely brutal, ruthless, stop, take no prisoners guy, and uh, what he what he does and the enemies that he makes and everyone hates him. It's just fantastic. He will do whatever it takes to to you know. Oh, get the get the film made. Everybody's in this movie. Walter oh. Pigeon, Dick Pyle, Gloria oh, Graham. So good. Gilbert Rowland, Leo G. Everybody. It's so good. Yeah. It's just so so good. And uh, produced by John Hausman, you know, who who would go on to be, of course, a great actor in and of himself, and an Oscar nominee. But uh, just just superb. The Bad and the Beautiful, one of the all time great inside Hollywood movies. Kirk Douglas, Lana Turner, Dick Pyle, and Walter Pigeon. Yeah. And um, then want to get into some uh, film movement Blu-rays, too, classics. One of them, uh, well, I'll do the two Studio Canal ones first. Um, these are both really, really interesting uh, film movement classics. Releases probably fell off somebody's radar a long time ago, but they are classic Ealing Studio comedies. Passport to Pimlico by Henry Cornelius and the Titfield Thunderbolt by Charles Crichton, who, of course, made a comeback with Fish Called Wanda many years later. Uh, these are both in the Studio Canal Library now, and they have been re-released by Film Movement under the Film Movement Classics line. They are wonderful and hilarious, and the Ealing comedies are just incomparable. Um, really incomparable. From 19, The uh, Passport to Pimlico was made in 1949, has a fantastic pre-My Fair Lady performance by Stanley Holloway that is just going to leave you in absolute and total stitches. 
Hermione Badley, Margaret Rutherford. Uh, these are all wonderful, wonderful performance, and the movie is so, 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 so funny. Written by T.E.B. Clark, and uh, it's it's just great. It's all about a um, an unexploded World War II bomb that explodes many, many years later and reveals something that mm. winds up setting off this bizarre series of uh, of events uh, that that it just gets so absurd. It, it just gets funnier and funnier. Uh, the Titfield Thunderbolt, oh. Charles Crichton film, uh, that is from 1953 and uh, also written by T.E.B. Clark, who was kind of their all-time uh, great screenwriter, shot by Doug Slocum, the yeah, great Doug British was... cinematographer yep. who would go on to do Raiders of the Lost Ark, and uh, it's uh, at least two sequels. And uh, this is all about uh, British railways closing a particular branch line and really upsetting the residents who decide they're going to reopen it. Yeah, and, run it themselves. That's so funny. Once again, a simple event that turns into an outlandish series of unintended consequences. Two really terrific films on Blu-ray. Passport to Pimlico and the Titfield Thunderbolt. Uh, and then the last of the film movement ones, and I'll turn this back over to Tim, uh, is uh, The Tiger of Eshnapur uh, and The Indian Tomb. These are This is a classic two-film epic by Fritz Long, that is um, extraordinary. He made this in 1959, long after his what what should have been his heyday. But he, um, it, it's it's this it's this amazing adventure epic set in India, uh, but made in Germany. And he had written it when during the silent era and held on to it. And it's just the backstory of this is really extraordinary. And you learn this in the audio commentaries from David Callot, who I, I just adore. There's also a documentary all about it. Gets into these details. The Indian epic, it's called, and um, it, it really is. You, you've you've got to just watch this. It it it's puts you know Indiana Jones and the, and the Temple of Doom to shame. It it's sort of in the same milieu, but not. It's just it's and Deborah Paget, who plays this uh, this dancer, is wonderful in this. Really a fantastic adventure epic. Uh, it is 203 minutes all in between the two films. And it is superb, and it's on Blu-ray from Film Movement Classics. And thank you, Film Movement, for doing this. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to get on Blu-ray at the beginning of 2020. Outstanding stuff. A little bit more TV. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you, I came to this series, this, uh, this Kevin Bacon, Aldous Hodge series, uh, City, City on a Hill, uh, Showtime series. Uh, uh, kind of late. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, set in Boston in the uh, in the in the early 1980s, is about a young DA goes to Boston, you know, to to do his thing, yeah. and he and he just finds a city that's rife with all kinds of corruption, racism, mm -hmm. this, that, and the other thing, and, and, and it's all about how the city tries to eat him and how he tries to push back against it. Uh, it's really really good movie. Uh, the, um, Kevin Bacon playing this young cop. Uh, family story. Um, it's just an outstanding, dramatic movie. Love that it's set in the 90s. It has that sort of 90s look. Everybody wearing those double-breasted coats uh, and that feel. And I don't know, it just resonated with me uh, deeply. Um, uh, resonated with me deeply uh, in terms of memory. Special features um, on each one of the episodes, including um, uh, episode three in which uh, Kevin's wife, Kira Cedric, directs. Uh, Fantastic. I'm glad she's doing that now. Um, the Loudest Voice in the Room. Interesting. Bombshell is a movie that's roaming around out there right now uh, uh, doing uh, Oscar season. Uh, a couple of, couple of decent nominations for Bombshell. Uh, there, of course, uh, Charlize won a Golden Globe for her portray portrayal. So this movie, The Loudest Voice in the Room, is about Roger Ailes, 
with, of course, Russell Crowe playing Roger, John As Lithgow. As John Lithgow, yeah. Uh, in Who that is movie. the better ales? Uh, a four and away Roger. Yeah. A, a four and away Russell. Uh, Russell. Uh, Russell. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, a four and away Russell. Um, uh, more foreboding. Yeah. Uh, uh, it has A lot of it has to do with the filmmaking, too. Because I always felt like John Lithgow was not playing Roger Ailes so much as John Barrymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, and, 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 and frankly, looking like John Lithgow in a yeah. Roger Ailes suit. Uh, whereas uh, Russell in this film is kind of disappearing into it a little yeah. bit. Uh, so, you know, besides that, this is a far and away better film or series yeah. or whatever yeah. you want to call it in, in any case. Special features in, includes uh, creating the loud, loudest voice. Um, yeah, you know, this, this film, I think, is a better movie. Uh, than, than Bombshell for a couple of different reasons, not just because that film is told from the perspective of the women, and this one is not really told from anybody's perspective. It's more, it's more of a sort of third-person kind of thing, so it hovers above it a bit, but I think it gives us a crisper and sharper uh, understanding of what was going on there. Uh, Family Guy Season 17. Uh, this, this, uh, this has uh, uncensored episodes, deleted scenes, all kinds of stuff. If you're a fan of The Family Guy, you want to get a hold of this 20-episode disc. Uh, it's a three-disc set. Deleted scenes, featurettes, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, and again, uncensored and uncut for those of you that like your Family Guy raw. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This is a wonderful episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Mr. Rogers and Making Mistakes. Of course, uh, Tom Hanks nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the film, yeah, he did okay. The film, the film, the film, yeah. you know, uh, okay as well. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, uh, this particular episode of Mr. Rogers' Making Mistakes. It's the one uh, where Mr. Rogers explains that everybody makes mistakes. And it's okay yep. to make mistakes. You don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed. And you should always take chances. And it's okay if you make a mistake because then you'll know not to do that again. I think I uh, need to watch that again. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I didn't learn the one, lesson yeah. the first time. It's one of those wonderful things. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Mr. Rogers and Making Mistakes. Wonderful. Uh, we got some shout uh, shout, shout Factory releases here some Shout Select uh, line stuff it's really worth mentioning um, The we got volumes 95 and 97 from the Shout to collect well 96 we, I think we talked about previously anyway Candy with Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish and Jeffrey Rush is out that is volume 95 this movie fell off of everybody's radar pretty quickly uh, this is from 2006 probably worth checking out again uh, it's one of Heath Ledger's more interesting kind of self-destructive performances, and especially considering how he died, it is a little bit eerie to yeah. watch. He's kind of a reckless bohemian guy, and uh, you know, fall, a poet, and he falls in love with Abby Cornish, and uh, it then it devolves into drug addiction and some other stuff. Um, really interesting audio commentary on here from Neil Armfield and Luke Davies, the writer-director team. And uh, a couple of featurettes, but it is—it's um, interesting. It's a—it's a worth rediscovering film, and I'm glad they brought it out again. It's a very, very good performance by Ledger, and um, you know, I, I'll leave it at that. But it, knowing what happened, it's—it's uh, it's quite a quite a sad film to watch. Yeah. The other one is Brewster's Millions, which is getting oh, wow. redeemed. Richard. The 1985 Richard Pryor film that did not get well reviewed at the time. Yeah. But you know what? Here's the thing, Brewster's Millions. It was a book that was turned into a play mm-hmm. that was turned into a movie in the silent era twice in 1914, 1921, turned into screwball comedies in the early sound era twice, 1935, 1945. 
was done on television. Like five foreign language adaptations were done in various countries. Brewster's Millions is such a great premise. This thing has been done to death, and I'm expecting that it will be done again very, very soon. It's been too long. 1985, you know, it's over 30 years ago. It's time that we have another Brewster's Millions, and I guarantee you it'll happen again. Um, But this one was designed specifically as a vehicle for for, uh, Richard Pryor, who at the time was kind of running out of stuff to do. In 1985, he wasn't doing the Gene Wilder stuff anymore, and the Superman thing hadn't really panned out. And so it was like, well, we need need a vehicle, so let's let's resurrect Brewster's uh, Millions, and and Pryor can really nail it, and let's stick John Candy in there as a sidekick because he's funny too, and, you know, we'll, we'll get something out of it. Now the whole the the whole angle here it's a great conceit which is that he he's a guy who is just an ordinary guy who has uh, received a huge inheritance but yep. there's a hitch. Yep. He has to spend uh an enormous amount of money yep. in this case 30 million yep. in 30 days in order to inherit 300 million. Yeah. Now, here's the problem I've always had with the premise. <laughs> If somebody gives me thirty million and says you got to spend this in thirty days to inherit three hundred, I'm saying nah, I'm good with the thirty. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good with the thirty. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna fail yeah. at that. Mm. And oh darn, I didn't get the three hundred. But you know what? I got thirty million. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, there are all kinds of wacky caveats so you can't tell anybody. Yeah. You so can't so tell so he looks like this, some 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 you know. And, and people try yeah. to stop him. Like, yeah. They're, they're like, losing oh. their minds. Like what are you doing? You're John John Candy. John Candy. He's losing his mind. He's hysterical. Yeah. In this I mean. So, so even though the premise is ridiculous, yeah. even though it's always been absurd, um, it does let comics be comics. And I will say this. People were too hard on this in the 85. Oh, yeah. They were way too hard on this. I like that movie. I saw that movie in theaters when it came out. I, I did, it was too. Quite shy. Who plays the female um, – uh, 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 was it, was it Troy, Troy Bear? Was it was Radon Chong? I can't remember who it was. It's, uh, no, no. It's, it's – uh... It was it was it, Lynette I, I, McKee. Lynette Lynette yeah. McKee, of course, who had Lynette been in McKee. who had been in uh in, in, in any which way but loose. Yes, and she's and also in Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Yeah, yeah. so it was really and good. she's wonderful. Yeah, whatever happened to her? She's absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, Jerry Orbach shows up, you know, and Hume Cronin. I mean, they got all kinds of interesting uh, people who show up. And what's really fun here is Walter Hill directed this. As yeah. long as we're talking about Vincent Minnelli stepping outside, you know, like Walter Hill, yeah, the guy who makes yeah. you know, shoot. Uh, Last man know. standing. Uh, all that, yeah. yeah, no, let's get let him, let him show his lighter side. And you know what? It's fine. It really, it's not brilliant, but it really, there are scenes that are incredibly funny in hindsight. And I think people were much too cruel to this film at the at the time. Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon produced it. You know, two guys known for action movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just got all these action movie people and just let them go a little bit light. And it's really fun. I I thoroughly enjoy it. New audio commentary with uh, William Bibiani and Whitney Seabold, hosts of the uh, critically acclaimed podcast. And then. Um, uh, an interview with Herschel Weingrad, a uh, screenwriter, and the uh, they also include the 1945 Dennis O'Keefe and Helen Walker version of the film, 79 minutes long, uh, which was the last one before this. Uh, if you want to see the the other the 1935 film or whatever, you 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 have to find it elsewhere. But it's a it's fun. So Brewster's Millions. Um, also from Shout Factory, we got the Universal Horror Collection Volume Three. This is a lot of uh, kind of. Uh, universal horror branded films that people have otherwise forgotten about. They're not so great, but if you're into the genre, it's worth checking out. Tower of London, Man-Made Monster, Horror Island, and The Black Cat. The Black Cat's probably the best of these. Basil Rathbone uh, and Bela Lugosi kind of hold it down. 
Uh, Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff are also uh, quite fun with Vincent Price in The Tower of London. Lon Chaney Jr., Man-Made Monster. Uh, Horror Island is probably the least interesting of them, apart from the fact that it co-stars Leo Carrillo, the uh, the Mexican actor who was very much a big philanthropist and in, 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 uh, conservationist in, at the time. Uh, and there's a beach named after him just a little bit uh, north of here, the Leo Carrillo State Beach. So that's interesting to always kind of rediscover some of those figures. Uh, also, the very underrated Dracula, starring Frank Langella. Oh, my La- favorite Dracula performance of mm. all. Frank Langella is amazing in that 1979. film. 1979. 1979, yeah. You know what else is amazing? Yeah. The John Williams score. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It's a great score. Great cinematography, great production design. Uh, yeah. if, if you've never seen that film, the end of that film, when, when Dracula, and you know, meets uh, yeah. the demise that he always yeah. meets at the end of yeah. every film, so I'm not, yeah. uh, it's just absolutely astounding. On the on the ship of that desk uh, of that yes. the uh, the uh, the, uh, the deck of that uh, yeah, the ship. ship oh yeah. it's just beautiful it's fantastic uh, you got a great commentary here a new commentary uh, by uh, film critic Constantine Nazar which is really terrific that's on disc two which is the theatrical version and then on disc one which is the 1991 director's cut John Batham did a director's cut are you kidding me. Yes, he did. Uh, you get the actual commentary by John Badham, as well as a new interview with John Badham, who is just so much fun. Um, one of my favorite John Badham quotes is, is one that Ray always brings up, which is that John Badham said, anybody tries to call me an auteur, I'll kick him in the ass. He didn't want to be called an artist. Yeah. John Badham wanted to be known as just a guy that made movies. He's a yeah. workaday guy. And, uh, Doc his Hollywood. Book, his book is terrific. Anyway, John Badham, uh, in 1979, this is right before he really launched. He had a great year uh, just a couple of years later when he did Black, uh, did uh, War Games and Blue Thunder in the same year. But Dracula, you know, came right on the heels of Saturday Night Fever. He was showing he could do a lot of stuff. It's got a wonderful score by John Williams, um, produced by Walter Mirisch, and uh, executive produced by Marvin Mirisch. And Walter Mirisch... Uh, of the Mirish Brothers, who, of course, did tons of great movies, uh, including all the Pink Panther movies yeah. in the 1960s. Uh, I should point out, Walter Mirish is still alive. Yeah. He is like 97, 96, <laughs> 97, 98, something like that. I think he's 98, might even be 98. He is still around. He still puts on a tie and a coat every day and goes to his office on the Universal lot every day. He has, as he has for like the last 60 years, he's still developing projects, yep. still looking to remake stuff. It's quite amazing. Um, that uh, as, as it happens, Brandt, the writer-director of our short, yeah. was on the Universal lot some years ago and got into an elevator with this <laughs> with old guy Walter. and just started having a conversation. And it was uh, right at the end of that conversation, uh. he discovered, I'm talking to Walter Mirisch? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I there love he was, it. going to work in the tower. It's it, fantastic. It, it. So anyway, Dracula, Frank Langella and Lawrence Olivier and Donald Pleasance. Just a superb film. Really, really great. Um, written, we should point out, by uh, W.D. Richter, who would go on to do Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's go That's for it. Fantastic. A little bit of TV. Yeah. Uh, so seasons uh, 11 and 12 of Ancient Aliens. Uh, to just set both of these, uh, volumes one and volumes two from the history from the history channel. Look, if you if you um, if you know the ancient aliens uh, series, you know that all of them are constantly uh, shedding new light on uh, the theory that extraterrestrials not only visited humans uh, on Earth in the distant past, but are hanging around now. That's what these are all about, uh, and, uh, and they always have been. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, let's do one more. And then um, we'll uh, this three D. 
three DVD collectors set of Deadline. When reporters ruled and were heroes. I love this 39, I love this 39 episode yeah. complete series because of what it is. First of all, most of the stuff was lost. You haven't seen this on any of the you know the stations that run all yeah. the, the repeats of episodes or anything like that. You haven't seen this because this was lost for a very, very long time. What I love about this series, particularly now, is that at the center of each one of these episodes is a newspaper person, a reporter. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're using the shoe leather, leather to figure out what the hell is going on. And they're the heroes of the series in the same way that cops were the heroes of other series. Yep. Um, I, I cannot think of an equivalent. Uh, oh, maybe, oh, what was that um, that series in the 80s with Lou Grant? I think it was called Lou Grant. Oh, it was Lou Grant. Yeah, it was sure. called Lou yeah, Grant. Lou Grant. Um, um, uh, that was, uh, you know, the, the sort of intrepid, crusading yeah. reporter types. This entire yeah. series is about that. And, and as we live in a world today, you know, fake news and all this kind of stuff, the sort of notion that standing between us very often uh, and, uh, and, and, and politicians and criminals and all kinds of stuff are reporters, uh, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful notion. The series ran from 1959 to 1961. It really is great. 39 episodes. Some, of, some actors in this series that will blow your mind. Uh, the actors awesome. that came through this series, so you'll 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 enjoy it completely. All kinds of bonus features on it as well. So you know, if you're a, if you're a fan of journalism and reporters and reporting, watch Deadline when reporters were heroes. Thirty nine episodes, the whole complete series. Fantastic. All right, folks, that's it. We will be back next week, and uh, we'll have a terrific week. Uh, start start doing your Oscar prognostication. That's what this time of year is all about. We only got a few weeks. It's the earliest Oscar season in history. Yeah. See you next week.